Bears, Tansei, Sego, Ani Buju, Kuei Nindaluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. The Mi'kmaq Nation has seen racism, violence, dispossession, and oppression from all levels of government, federal, provincial, and municipal at different points in time, and sometimes even from various industries and some segments of society. We've had numerous flashpoints as a result of government inaction in protecting our rights. We've seen it in Listigush, Eskenobridge, Elsibukduk, and now Sebeganegedi. And all of the root causes are the de- continued denial of our rights for the sake of economic benefit for other industries. But despite this, the Mi'kmaq have always been strong, resilient people, and we continue to live and assert and defend all of our rights and the protection of our people. Over the last few months, we've seen a great deal of racism, violence, and intimidation not coming from our people, but by coming from other people. But our people have continued to act with strength, dignity, and peace. And this is especially true of our youth, elders, fishers, community members, and leaders all over Mi'kma'ki, but especially in Sebeganegedi. And here to talk with us today about what's been happening on the ground is Sebeganegedi Chief Michael Sack. He has been a pillar of strength in the chaos that is the violence that has come from non-Native people. We're so thankful that you've been able to join us here on the Warrior Life Podcast. Welcome to the show, Chief. Thank you very much for having me, Pam. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Well, um, maybe you could introduce yourself and where you're from and uh, give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I grew up in Indian Brook, now called Sebeganegedi, um, born and raised. I, I left the community um, to build a home when I was 22. Um, at that point, it was just a single guy that was never going to get a house, you know, and I wanted to start developing. So um, you know, at 21, my father passed away. Um, at 23, I was voted on the council. Um, off and on, I spent 10 years in on council. Uh, for about 15 years, I ran my own construction company, building homes and such. Um, a lot of different business ventures I was in over the years. And then I just decided that it was, uh, I need to do more for my community. And I, I felt that, you know, being the chief um, was the best way to do so. So I, I put all my focus towards that. And just uh, a month ago, I was voted back in for my um, my third term as chief, and I'm I'm very honored for myself. It's a an ideal job. It's a dream job. I um, I work every day. I, to me, it's not work. If you love what you do, it's it's enjoyable. And um, but I have a goal in mind, and and that deficient falls within it. But it's more so for everything I do is for that young child that doesn't have a winter coat or you know, is, is not heading down the right road. So um, that stuff is very, very stuff that hits home, you know, very much so. And uh, I think that everything I've done in life prepared me to, to where I'm going now. And um, it's going to help me help my community moving forward. 
Well, and you come from uh, a community with incredibly strong roots. I mean, throughout history, uh, Sabaganagadi has had a long series of strong, independent leaders, community members who are active in their own governance, but also in advocacy. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the history of your community, because it's always stood out as a community that makes its own mind and goes its own direction. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what makes us unique is uh, our community is filled with warriors. And um, sometimes it's a little bit harder to do stuff, but at other times uh, you wouldn't want to have it any other way. And, um, you know, just sometimes I'd be stuck on something and I'd someone send me a video that would have a former chief Reg Maloney in it or or past leaders or such. Right. And it's um, it puts you in the right frame of mind, get you thinking why we're doing this for where we're going and that. Life is about so much more than money. You know, money does make the world go around. Um, it's very important. Well, take it all away, and, and what do you have, right? So, for me, there's the past leaders in our community have never took that money, and uh, I could not be more grateful for that. And I will continue to do so. And I, I think that um, all of that's leading up to us deciding our own way. And I do believe that we'll get there. It's just a matter of uh, a matter of time. And it's a real example, both like your leadership. I mean, the true test of a leader is being thrown into chaos and being able to um, speak in a way that educates people, that reassures your own people, that is focused on rights and safety, and it doesn't descend into the usual government, you know, divide and conquer and politics. And then to have an election, like literally an impending election right in the middle of it. I mean, it had all of the characteristics for everything to go sideways, you know, to descend into division and politics. But, um, you know, your community seemed very much to come together and rally around one another. And I mean, it was so inspiring to see your youth on social media, keeping everybody up to date. Or, you know, the elders coming to comfort people and you being available every day, whether it's in mainstream media or social media or by letters, to consistently be open and answer questions so that people knew what was going on. And I think that's, um, that's, that's a testament to your leadership, but also to the strength of your community, because this isn't the first time you've had to deal with these issues. Yeah, no, and thank you for that. It's been... Um... Media is not very fun, I don't find, you know, but getting into this, it was just, um, for me, it came from within. And if you're, I think you're passionate about it, you'll be able to speak about it. And um, yeah, our community came together. This election, like I say, it's been almost 20 years since I've been playing in politics, so to speak. And this was the most peaceful election I've ever seen. And, and to see that was very nice. Um, there was no fight within the community, you know everybody realized we have a bigger issue at hand and a more collective one that can take community in leaps and bounds further ahead. Um, our elders are there to calm us. Um, you know, I learned very early on that uh, you can't cry over spilt milk. And if you really think about it, you spill milk on the floor, there's no way of getting it back in that container. So uh, you just move on, clear your head. And uh, some days were, were very challenging. My phone started at six in the morning and, and at 11 at night, I was finishing a meeting with my team. Um, you know, very great people around me and uh, our team grew as it went on. And, you know, we're still looking to expand that just to make sure that everything I did, I thought it out because I'm not, I didn't want to affect anyone else's rights or what any other community may be doing. So 
it was more than just us moving forward. We had to be mindful of not affecting any other indigenous person in, in Canada, um, you know, because the government would like latch onto that, right? So it's, uh, I don't know, it was a stressful time. Um, but I, I did walk into the woods, you know, pretty much every day and um, ground myself. And I don't think I, without that, I wouldn't have got through it. Well, and you know, it's um, every day when we were watching what was happening in the media and you would address the media, I got so many responses, you know, obviously from Native people around the country who are totally supporting your community and the Mi'kmaq Nation as a whole, but thousands of messages from Canadians saying this, he doesn't even sound like a politician. He's just getting up there. He's, you know, like everybody else, just sharing what he knows, being honest, no speaking points. And that, I think, gave Canadians a real taste of what leadership can be like. It doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to be speaking points. It doesn't, you can actually just be a human being and talk about the issues that people care about because Canadians were concerned too. Nobody wanted anything to, bad to happen to Mi'kmaq people. And so um, I think, you know, you, you changed a lot about how we can engage with the public and that you kept people informed and especially with the letters, like you posting your letters and letting people know what's happening on a regular basis. That was also really important. Yeah, and as far as being like another politician, I guess I don't want to be a, a politician or I never set up to be one, right? For me, it was about how I can advance my community. And uh, my team might have thought I was crazy at some points, but I'd take their speaking notes and put them in my back pocket, right? And I don't know what they didn't think was going to happen, but, uh, you know, I just, I was told early on to, to speak from the heart, and that's what I, I tried to do. So fortunately, it worked out. And um, But the biggest thing for me was to be available for all media to make sure our message got out there. And even with that, you know, still some messages were a little cloudy. Um, you know, as far as like earlier on, they were saying how we we're gonna hurt the lobster industry. And there was no way we could do it with like a one to 2% of what we we're taking out. So it was just that, to make sure that people knew what was going on and do, uh, but I think it's my job to do that, right? So, you know, I, um, I made sure I was available and, and that was my whole focus. And uh, I didn't even get a, a campaign letter done. It was, um, I tried many times, it just wasn't happening. There's too much going on. I, you know, Digby to home is a couple hour drive. So I drove it, you know, a few times a week and um, I did a lot of thinking and tried to push this forward, right? I think it's really important what what you also said about you were not only, I mean, your community for years working on, you know, your internal governance and plans for moving forward. And we've seen um, a video on YouTube under Sebeganegadi's YouTube channel about the governance process and how it came from the people. And it's, you know, about internal consultation. And I think that's really important. But you also said something about, in addition to asserting your rights, you know, as Mi'kmaq people, but also at Sebeganegadi, you were also very conscious about not negatively impacting other rights from, say, other Mi'kmaq First Nations or other First Nations across the country. And I think um, that that's the kind of really strategic and balanced approach that we need, especially in the middle of chaos, because it is chaos. And it would be so easy to just focus on immediate needs and not see the bigger picture. But it, you know, it seems like Sebeganegadi in, in focusing first and foremost on protecting rights has always kind of had its eye on the bigger picture, not just the immediate. 
And that's where our focus is now. Um, early on, things would come to me and I would be like, no, uh, I told my team, we're fighting the wrong fight and uh, it needs to be bigger than fish. And this, this is not about fish. And um, through a lot of conversations, we figured that, you know, this was about the self-governance and, and setting ourselves up properly so we can govern ourselves. And, you know, we, we talked to the government and you know what it's like. It's all like, they hear you, we'll get back to you. It never happens, right? So for us, it's a matter of now making a proper stance. And I, I need communities to come behind me just to make sure that, um, because when we go to uh, the premier, uh, we speak, we, we speak what's on our mind. He reads his speaking notes. We can ask questions. He goes back to his speaking notes. For me, that's not a relationship. You know, a relationship is conversation back and forth two ways. Um, yeah, so like that was with the premier. And um, I just think that it needs to be a two-way conversation. And, and Canada needs to recognize that we are a nation and, and we're going to deal with the government on a nation-to-nation basis. And um, like our people, the poverty report came out, you know, like last week or week and a half ago, right? And um, not a better example than that, 78.1%, I think ours was. And, and that's the highest. And, uh, you know, in the community next to us, Shibanakati is five minutes away and it's, um, it's at 30 or something percent. So just within that five minutes, you shouldn't have a drastic change like that, but it's racism is there. Um, I don't even like the word. Uh, to me, I like someone or I don't because of that person, not because of where they are or who they come from or, or whatever, right? So for me, um, like I said, we put a, a letter out to Minister Bennett and um, he'll wait and hear back. I sent her a text message yesterday looking for a reply and she's, they're working on their letter. So we're moving forward with that nation to nation. Uh, there's other species that people want to fish. Some people can't fish, they, you know, health-wise or whatever. So we're looking to go into forestry. Um, whatever we can do for resources uh, to help our people come out of poverty. And, and that poverty line, like, that's a very scary thing. You know, like, Christmas time is coming. It's happy for some people. But for some people, you know, it's probably a scary time of year as well. And uh, I just take all that into consideration. And housing. Um, very, very bad. We need 400 homes to keep up with our growth. We need $10 million to renovations in the homes we do have to make them up to standards. Like you can go on all day with, with what it is, but when we try to reach out to government, we get nowhere. Um, and then you get the bad stuff in the news that say, you know, first nations get everything for free and, and such. And, and that's horrible to hear as well. Right? Like it's, uh, but I think too, that the, the residential school is five minutes from my community where it used to be those effects are still going on. You know, you're still getting the, the ripple effect from that. And um, there's so much healing that needs to happen. And, and I, um, I learned years ago as well that like the, the love over hate, you know, it sounds so cliche, but you know, it just works way better than, uh, so I don't interact with uh, negativity. I, um, I try to push that positivity within my community as well. And I think that uh, that'll help us out in the long run. There's, you know, there's no point in being upset over stuff. Um, we just need to move forward and, you know, our eyes on a prize that's going to be a better life for our people within time. Well, yeah. And that's um, an acknowledgement that, you know, like genocide and colonization is not our fault. I mean, the fact that Mi'kmaq people more than any other nation have been subjected to like literally 500 years of, you know, these genocidal policies and we're still here, but we're here in a way where we have lots of trauma, we have um, lots of issues, and you know we have to accept our people where they are. We're, we're all in different places. None of it is our fault 
but we have to find a way, you know, to move forward for everybody. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, the issue of poverty and it's a poverty that shouldn't exist in one of the wealthiest territories on the planet. I mean, the United Nations Special Rapporteur has said over and over again, it makes no sense that with all of Canada's so-called wealth, Indigenous peoples don't get to benefit from their own territories. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit um, about this, because it's it's more than just fish. I mean, like, what's the importance of Mi'kmaq people being able to engage in, you know, it could be hunting, it could be fishing, it could be gathering, it could be trade, it could be manufacturing, all of the ways in which we could possibly earn a living in our own territories. Yeah, so even with the fish, like, we went down there to establish our own fishery and to um, work with the government to make sure that um, conservation was the number one issue. Uh, then the commercial people came about and, and made it about a, you know, a fight about seasons and such. We've done a lot of work. We've had a big team look into everything that was said. Um, the seasons were established for the economy. Um, that's when they get the top dollar for their lobster. Our people cannot fish. Like as of right now, our season is done with. Um, our boats cannot go out there this time of year. So that's why we're, I, I've expressed my concern to the minister. I said, we're not trying to be defiant and, and, and oppositional and try to make our own fishery just because this is what works for us. Um, they're doing what works for them. And then, um, but I think it back to like the treaties. I value the treaties. I don't like the, the Marshall too. Um, the Marshall one I thought was great, like that they recognize that right. But then who in the right mind gets to come back and say, no, no, we're going to limit this. You know, you, you can, yeah, you can do that, but wait, now we're doing this. So I always explain to people, to me, it's like a 100-yard football field. And that moderate livelihood is the last 20 yards left that we have to fight with. So I'm like, why aren't we pushing back? Take that back to that Marshall 1. We make a Marshall 3 that cancels out Marshall 2. You know what I mean? Like that motion that cancels the motion. So um I just don't know. And I've been racking my brain and I've asked people, there's a lot of intelligent people around that we can, you know, tap into for that information. And um, people don't have an answer as to, you know, how somebody just comes about and changes something without the, but we, we face it all the time. You know, uh, council meeting, we had um, people in from ISK and we we're telling them about our roads and we needed some repairs. And they're like, well, that's no longer um, federal. Now it's provincial. So they switched the funding into the province without even telling us. So, so many things happen, and I feel that the, the Mi'kmaq of Nova Scotia and probably all natives across Canada should be on an approval stage. So when you get a big project that comes into your area and they want to develop it, the feds approve it, province approves it, and we'd have to approve it. There's um, a lot of that stuff that doesn't, doesn't match up. Yeah, and I think that's important, everything that you just said, because you know this, it's also about governance being able to govern our own territories and have a say in what happens, not just a benefit, but also a say in what happens. Um, and, you know, we try really hard to remind people that our rights and powers don't just come from the treaties of 1760-61 or 52 or 1725-26, but we, we have inherent pre-existing pre-contact sovereign authorities and jurisdictions and laws and abilities to engage in our own industries regardless i mean the treaties are a, a, a recognition of some portion of it 
but our sovereignty is about all of it, all over all of our territories. So it's um, I, I, I really appreciate how you've been out there speaking to not limiting us to just that one case in that one scenario. Well, I feel that if, if we're stuck with a moderate livelihood and then in, in uh, five years time, they decide they want to change it, you're never going back. So mm -hmm. why even discuss that? For me, it's like uh, we need to establish this. Our, our communities are, we have so much education. Our people are getting very smart. Um, we have all aspects covered. So we need to be you know, our own government, our own nation. And uh, that was like when they wanted to define what a moderate livelihood is. And, and that's where I refused to go under that um, yeah. the parliament uh, debate or whatever that group was, because nobody knows our community like we do. And if anyone's going to define that, you know, it will be us because how could they, they don't know how our people live and it's, um, they'd be surprised by it, you know? So I, I'm actually having someone come out to our community to try to show them around and try to let them see what's what and, and that we're not just there trying to get rich off of uh, fishing. Yeah, exactly. And, and I know we've been watching very closely what's been happening because uh, the DFO minister said that they were going to engage in negotiations with your community. Then we heard in the media that um, DFO, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, had sent your community an MOU. And we were all anxiously awaiting to see is this going to be a radically, drastically different MOU than what we've seen in all the other communities, um, which, it, you know, which aren't uh, great? And then we just saw your most recent letter saying, asking the prime minister to intervene. I, I mean, without divulging any confidences, can you just talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so we spent um, months talking with the minister, Jordan, and her team, and uh, we were very upfront from the first conversation. I actually mentioned that they put it all on the table. Like, we're going to be open. We're going to be honest. Let's not waste anyone's time. Like, we knew that we weren't going to negotiate a treaty, right? We knew that we were not going to take a DFO-issued license. And we knew that we were going to, um, like, look to establish our own fishery outside of their fishery. For me, it was a matter of, like, uh, we weren't there to waste anyone's time. Like, let's say what's what. And, and we had some hard lines that we needed. Like, we were not going to negotiate a treaty, right? That was a most important thing. We weren't going to take a DFO-issued license because that would be no different than the, to what they're doing now, the communal commercial stuff. Um, we also want to, we're just looking to establish our own fishery outside of their fishery. The conservation that anyone had a problem with, we're very well, um, we're fully transparent on that. We're well make DFO a part of that, helping to self-govern it, um, to regulate that sort of stuff just to make sure there was no overfishing or, or no um, taking any smaller lobsters or, or whatever. But it, and then her, her team comes back and her team was trying to, you know, push us into that commercial season and such. And I, I was very upfront and I said like, our boat can go for like two or three weeks out of that season, out of that six month season. Like how would that work? And then the lobsters move out. So our people can't go out there and they have 375 traps. We had 50 per license. We only issued 14, so that's 700, but it never actually hit the max 700. Um, right now, that season's on, and there's uh, close to 400,000 traps in the water in that same area. So if you're looking at conservation, they're, they're not looking at us, right? So, um, But it, it, then it was the last minute. It was uh, the MOU came, and we're happy to see that they recognized our right to, uh, to catch, like to harvest and to sell our product, which was great. 
but then uh, we thought for sure that we would change and, and meet somewhere on the, the number of licenses and such. So their MOU had um, DFO issued a license, which was a no-no for us. They were trying to issue 10, which would be, you know, 10 people could fish, which for us was no good. We have 2,800 band members. Um, and they want us to do it in that commercial season, which we could only fish two weeks at the beginning, two weeks at the end, out of a, a six-month season, which was no good for us. And um, there was one other point, but, oh, it did not reflect the treaty right within there, a right to do so and such. So when, uh, when Minister Jordan kind of drew a hard line with it, we just knew we were done. So we're, um, and for that there, it was probably better off. Like, we had a rush to get it so our people could fish this year. And that's what happened. So that took the importance out of that MOU. Now we're going for that bigger, long-term nation to nation and looking to establish that. So um, that's what we're working on now. And uh, we wrote a letter back and we also wrote to the, uh, the prime minister just to let him know that he, he had um, mandate letters gone out to his ministers and they were to work with the indigenous and such. And that was far from that. Like it was just to, to limit us. And we even went as far as um, we had some great lawyers on staff or that work for us, James Michael and Rosalie Francis. And um, we sent different avenues that they could take, you know, under Section 35 of the Constitutional Right, we can self-govern ourselves. Or under Section 4.1 of the Federal Fisheries Act, Minister of Fisheries can enter into an agreement with a, a band like ourselves and um, establish that fishery. There's no willing to do so. So for us, it's a matter of, okay, that, like, that tells us where we stand and we'll, we'll act accordingly to that. So that's what we're doing now. Is really unfortunate because it doesn't seem like they've really moved in a substantive way from 21 years ago. I mean, there was a mad rush back then to get bands to sign uh, these, you know, uh, fishing agreements that were limiting of rights and and under their processes. And despite all of the violence and everything that we saw and their commitments, you know, oh yes, we recognize it. It doesn't seem like they've moved that into action that they they're not it doesn't seem like they're willing to deviate very much from their status quo and that was a thing um where we were fully willing to let them help with um the not the governance but the uh the overseeing to make sure that like the conservation part was you know fully in check and um we had no problem with that but as far as them dictating to us where and what like that conversation from the first one to the last one, in my mind, nothing changed on their behalf. They could have said that the first one and, and saved all of that conversation. Um, but then it's, it was just a frustrating process. Uh, you think you're having a great conversation, making headway, and then they pull a rug right out and from underneath you, right? And um, for me, that's not right either. And that's where I feel that the government needs to be held accountable for, for doing that. So when we were watching this on the media, statements being made, you were always being fair to the government. You were always saying, I'm optimistic about these negotiations. I'm optimistic about what, you know, we can put on the table. Like you were always presenting it in a positive light. So they don't even have any reason, you know, 
not to live up to the benefit of the doubt that you were giving them. And it's, you know, for Canadians, it's really disappointing on multiple levels, but especially for Native people to say, is this how they're going to continue to act at every negotiation table? Because, you know, it's it's not just the one in Sebaganagety. What about the, you know, the negotiation tables at 1492 Lambac Lane or in Wet'suwet'en territory or in Shequepmik territory or any part? Like, they need to come to the table and really earn that benefit of the doubt that we continue to, to grant them. Yeah. And um, for me, for the people that are not, not aware with um, the dynamics or the geographics of Nova Scotia, Minister Jordan lives in Bridgewater, which is two hours south of, um, hour and a half south, I guess, of Digby. And, uh, but it's also like an hour away from Yarmouth and such. So she's well within a fishing community herself. So there was many times where I thought that, like, uh, to give her an out, I, I also said that I respect what she's doing because of the position she is in. Um, and if it's going to be the fishing community that votes her in, what's her decision going to be? So that's where I thought that uh, the prime minister being that, you know, the heavy situation in that area sort of did a shuffle. Um, you know, for the most part, she was very good to talk to until that last one where she would not budge at all. Um, but I feel that, you know, that influence in the area is what made everything so bad. And uh, as of right now, you know, they, they arrested 21 people last week for that um, the incident where the lobster pound was, the lobsters were taken and it was burnt and such. But there's hundreds of people there at every event. There's hundreds of commercial fishermen and um, they just got away with so much. And that was a frustration. There was 120 odd boats in the bay, you know, blocking our people from fishing. And those are big commercial vessels that are four times the size of, you know, what our people have. So that's why the systemic racism part is like, I'm not one to call that card, but what else would it be, you know, where that happens and such. And I used to fish myself. I, I forgot to mention that part earlier, but back in 99, I fished um, in Digby and such. So I, I know all about it. And um, DFO, they'd come and they'd board our boat like nothing. But you know, we begged for them to go out there and, and to stop them from taking our traps. And one conversation I was on a phone with Minister Jordan and her team, uh, there's a chief's call, and I got a text message that DFO was taking our traps. And our fishermen were all sending me pictures, text messages about um, boats, uh, DFO boats, Coast Guard boats with our traps and our tags for modern livelihood. And I, I asked them, what, why are they doing that? And their answer was that we're not. We're not touching any modern livelihood tags. They're traps. And I was like, that's, that's a lie. You know, I got the evidence right here. And then the next day, they put it out on social media. Um, so they don't know, like, what the underground's doing versus the, the higher-ups. For me, it's, um, it's frustrating. If I'm telling my band members that, you know, they're not going to bother our gear, like they said, next thing you know, they're taking it. Uh, that was a month ago. We're supposed to have those back. Still haven't heard back. So... They get away with whatever they want and they do what they want. And I think that the uh, Canadians as people need to hold them accountable because at some point in time, it'll affect those people. You know, we've seen it affect the farmers, uh, people in mining and forestry, and it doesn't matter to anyone until it actually affects them. Mm -hmm. And then it shows you that there's a video out that the LFA 34 lobsters community does lobster wars or something. And the guy under says like, if you don't catch 70,000 pounds in your first week, you're screwed. And then there's also a picture on there of a trap they pull up 
and they had a legal gear on it. So, you know, it's just, um, it's unbelievable the way they tried to paint that picture and such. And um, sometimes you're just left with like, where do I go from here? You know, if, if you, for me, it's like in Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq population is about 2% of the people. So you can't tell me that doesn't have a, an effect in it, right? Like if, if the majority, I'm sure we'd have things the way we're supposed to be. But then again, I always use the analogy like uh, your house, everybody like familiar with the house of government comes, takes your windows one day, your, your roof the next, and then so on and so on. You're going to be left with no home. And, and what are you going to do about it? You can't call it government. You know, they control everything, right? Well, and I think, you know, you're raising a, a really important set of facts that, you know, people aren't aware of, which is why I appreciate that you engage so much in the media and keep everybody informed because, you know, at first people thought it was just going to be a few isolated acts of violence, um, a few people getting out of hand. And we've seen that over months, it's hundreds of people who will never be held to account. And we know why that is. We know Minister Jordan is from that, you know, from all of these impacted areas. We know many of the RCMP were born and raised in those areas. And even this so-called special mediator, I mean, they literally pick someone who is from that area. I mean, every time they stack the deck and then they don't tell the truth. I mean, you didn't hear DFO admitting to the you know million dollar stings where they were putting secret tracking devices into Lobster to try to prove that Mi'kmaq people are in, involved in this massive underground market of selling. First of all, that's our right to do it. And, and second of all, that didn't come out in their investigation, but they're willing to put so much money into stopping us instead of actually just coming to the table and saying, okay, yeah, you know, you get a fair share of your own resources because technically all of Mi'kmaq is unseated. It's, it all belongs to the Mi'kmaq nation, all of it, the lands, the, the waters, the resources, the airspace, what's in the ground, like everything, all of the wealth generated in our territories. We should be getting a part of that and we don't, but they don't even want us to enjoy our, our rights a little bit. And what concerns me is, you know, the way in which it is all structured that way. But, you know, the society, the governing structure and all the laws are very biased and one-sided to keep us out. They effectively act as a blockade to keep us from benefiting or governing our own territory. And it's ours. It's unseated. And that's that too. Like, I'm glad you mentioned the point about the, um, the special appointee or, or whatever you would call them. Um, but I know that when she mentioned it to me, I said, um, like, that's crazy. And I, I even swore and I apologize later on, but I just took me by surprise. Like uh, I said, that was no different than them appointing me to mediate with both sides. Um, this, this gentleman's uh, he's from Pubnico where the pound was burnt. He, the, the Dean or whatever at that university in um, five minutes from the wharf, like, and he's a liberal supporter or whatnot like he's completely tied in it, it to me it was very it was just uh i could not believe they did that like who in the right mind would even try that um so that was one of the points that i, I could not believe that what they would do but it, i guess it goes to show where where you stand or whatever in my mind what's next and i'm saying what's next not just in terms of sabaganagity but you know 
we've seen in the last week that our, you know, one of our relatives in Pictou Landing First Nation saw non-native fishermen trying to take up his traps and he goes to investigate and he gets shot at. I mean, this isn't even where you are. So the violence is really all over Mi'kma'ki. Like, what are you concerned about the safety of all Mi'kmaq people, but especially people in Sabaganagadi? The biggest, um, I'm not sure if it's hiccup or obstacle, I guess you would say, is that the government is at the right now actually trying to go around us and um, have other communities take a deal. And anyone that does take that deal, it's going to hurt the rights of all of us. And that's why we would never take a deal. Like we said, we're not looking for money. Like money doesn't fix this. Like, uh, you know, money gets spent and our people will be still suffering. We need to live off those resources that are there and always will be there. Um, but I, I know that they've approached other communities to try to get them to take that more communal commercial access, which will do nothing for our people. And um, for us, I, I'm just working on trying to make sure that our all of our communities and our organizations are have a common goal of um, making sure that those rights are upheld and recognized. And once you weaken those or get rid of those, you know, we're no different than anyone, I guess, right? And so that's my biggest concern right now. And like I say, um, there's a few communities that are outside the KMK and uh, we're reaching out to them and we're going to try to make a strong argument for that nation to nation, the self-governance and um, get that established and work with Minister Bannon. For us, our, our next, like our next step is to make sure that we can establish our own nation and um, be our own government and look out for our people and, and make sure that people are treated, um, treated fairly and, and um, with their own well-being in mind. You know, we have a lot of, issues to correct from, uh, you know, a year ago, we did a land claim 1919 and it was about our people were moved out of land in Sambro and promised land in Halifax. And, um, that never happened. They, you know, Shibnakati, my community, Sabaganagati is, is between, it's kind of right in the middle of Nova Scotia for the most part. And it's, um, outside of everything, you know, we have a lot of swamp around us. We have, we're having a hard time now with, um, places to put roads for houses and such. And uh, so there's just been way too much mistreatment. And for us to even try to discuss anything with government, I think that's a big step in its own. You know, if somebody screws you over time after time after time, how do you keep talking to them, right? Exactly. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that you're working on uh, you know, you want to move forward nation to nation, that this is about being self-determining and our own laws and governing systems. I think that's the way of the future. And I think you're really speaking to the youth as well, who say this, this is what we want for the future. We don't want what happened before. Um, before you go, um, is there anything that our podcast listeners or YouTube watchers can do to help support Sabaganagadi? Yeah, I guess the um, the biggest thing that I say is that to help us get our message out there and, you know, the, the, the commercial industry tried to push it that we were just trying to take from them and we're not like, and then once they realized there was a, you know, their livelihood was going to be affected a little bit, which they thought, you know, there's major pushback. My answer was, what do you, how do you think our people feel? Like they've been, things have been taken for years and nothing's happened, right? So um, for me, it's a matter of, we were here and we're just looking to have our fair share and uh, 
we're not looking to hurt any species or the, the land or anything. Like uh, we're going to be the last ones that fight for it. And my community has been very well um, shown that over the years. And, and I respect all the former leaders that have done that. And for me, it's just to help get our message out there that, you know, we're just looking to have that be respected as a government and to establish our own fisheries, uh, forestry, um, whatever resources that we may need to, to better our people. And, um, you know, but if there's any questions that you accumulate or anything, let me know and I'd be willing to come back at any time to discuss with you. Awesome. Well, I've been really encouraged by the way in which First Nations across the country and some in the States and Canadians in general have been sharing the information, putting pressure on governments to take action. And do you still have the donation uh, spot on your website where people can help send money to help, but especially the fishers who are so negatively impacted? Yeah, and, and that too, like we had to pull out our commercial season because we we're box head of the industry. We could not fish. And so our community as a whole lost about $3 million that way. And then, you know, our, our fishers that were there trying and getting beat down and their gear taken every week. It's, um, it's definitely been a, a rough one, but I'm very grateful for our fishers that continue to fight for us. And that's why I wanted to support them so much. And as a band, we're doing all we can. Yeah, we, we definitely have that, still have the... Um, the website up and we're you know we're still accepting um, donations and it's it's going to be a big legal battle at some point as well right which we're not looking forward to and um so hopefully we can get this established and we're trying to make sure our argument is good enough going into this so definitely if you have a way that you could share that um yeah that, that email address whatever and you know anything's greatly appreciated and we're uh we're just going to keep doing what's right and um fighting the fight, I guess, for the good fight. Um, well, thank you for all that you do as, you know, the leader, one of the many leaders of Sebaganegity, um, for what you do for the Mi'kmaq people and for Native peoples all over. I mean, just the fact that if processes don't work, don't participate in those processes. You know, have faith in your own laws and your own governing structures. You know, continue to work in good faith, but don't take it sit sitting down. Like I was really happy to hear that, you know, you, you're, you're out there and you're, uh, you know, defending those rights in a multitude of forums, the political forum on the ground, but also in the courts, that you're not going to take that kind of violence and abuse sitting down. And so I really appreciate all the work you do. And thank you for taking the time to come on this podcast. It'll also be on YouTube so that people can um, access it. We can keep sharing this information. And anytime you want to come back and give us an update, um, you're always welcome here. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. And I think one thing that I, I maybe forgot is that um, the approach on something like this is that you need to make sure that you're sure where you're going with it and, and don't let them get you tangled up and turned around. And, you know, they almost maybe would have done that and trying to get us into uh, that moderate livelihood box. And for me, it's like, no, no, we have a, a bigger right here and, and we'll take a step back and we'll make sure we get what we we want and what we deserve out of it, right? So just, yeah, be mindful because they're going to try to close you in as a negotiations, right? And we said all along, we're not going to negotiate. We're just looking to establish. They always so, yeah. do that, you know, yeah, divide sure. and conquer, try to fit you in their limitations. And so that's really good advice. Yeah, for sure. So thanks for having me. And I got a, a council meeting to jump yeah. on to here. And um, nice to meet you and, and we'll chat soon.
Yeah, for sure. And I'll post links to your website, all of this information. Please, podcast listeners, share this information. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, Aliag.